You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist. He's the author of Some, 40 Tales from the Afterlives. Thank you for joining me, David. Thank you. David, tell me a little bit about your work as a neuroscientist. I, I mean, how long have you been at this? It's not an, uh, uh, an old occupation, is it? <laughs> uh, I've been a neuroscientist for about 18 years now. And, um, yeah, and I try to figure out how the brain constructs reality. I try to figure out how everything you uh, see and think and act and believe, how this is all a construction of the pieces and parts, the billions of neurons that, that make you up. Now, um, tell us a little bit about the uh, technology involved with this research, because it's a, base, it's a very technological uh, occupation, isn't it? You know, sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. So we use all the cutting edge, the, the full armamentarium of modern neuroscience we have at our fingertips and we use it wherever it's appropriate. But a lot of the most interesting answers that we come by are done in the good old-fashioned way of presenting something to somebody and asking, what do you see? Uh, which one looks brighter? Which one came first? Which one looks bigger? And it turns out that by doing this sort of thing, let's say on a computer screen, um, that's a very powerful window into what's going on under the hood. So we make a lot of progress that way with very simple techniques. Well, that leads me to um, ask about the kind of writing you were doing before you were doing some. It sounds like a, a lot of that stuff uh, would really contribute to the creation of this really wonderful and very unique book. Thank you. I, you know, I think so. A lot of people have been asking me what the relationship is between my life as a scientist and my life as a fiction writer, and I've been denying any connection for a while now because I've really meant them to be separate pursuits in my life. But um, I, I think I am realizing there's a very deep connection there, which is that as a scientist, uh, you get very used to coming up with lots of ideas, being as creative as possible, and being okay holding multiple ideas in your head at the same time. And I know that sounds pretty, pretty straightforward, but um, in many fields there isn't that sort of tolerance for multiple ideas built into the system. Uh, in many fields, for example, the legal system, which is something that I study also, um, they want bright lines. You want to know whether somebody's guilty or not guilty, or mentally retarded or not, or... Um, a minor or not a minor, but but in in science it's never like that. Um, and what you get out of a life in science is a deep appreciation of the, of the vastness of our ignorance, all the things that we don't know, and um, so and you become comfortable holding multiple ideas in your head. Now, n- normally what we do in science is we put together multiple ideas and then we start testing them, and you rigorously test and you don't favor any one story over another until you find which way the weight of evidence points. But there are many, many questions for which um, we don't have any way of gathering evidence. We don't have, they're sort of beyond the tools of modern science. And so in writing some, it's not, as, as you know, the book some isn't actually about the afterlife. They're not real, they're not serious proposals about the afterlife. But but what they are is this, this exercise of saying, you know, here's a whole bunch of ideas, and we don't have any way of privileging one over the other. And so 
We're going to write 40 mutually exclusive stories and use them as vehicles to explore ideas. Now, one thing I think that's really interesting about this book is is the variety of ideas. Can you talk about uh, – it's almost uh, like a, a checklist in some ways uh, for the afterlife. Can you talk about uh, coming up with the variety of ideas for these visions? Yeah, I came up with those ideas over the course of seven years where it was always brewing in the back of my mind. I was always trying to think of, of the next story and the next story. And um, – and when I would come up with an idea, I would immediately jot it down on whatever scrap of paper I had. And then I would extrapolate that and, and figure out what the consequences of that idea, where it went. And, of course, it, it's, it's an interesting question because all 40 of the stories, I think, have totally different geneses. Um, yeah, they came about from different ideas and even different directions because sometimes a story came about because I was addressing an issue that I thought was maybe goofy about, um, you know, certain religious stories. For example, take the idea that there's a heaven and a hell, that there's a binary way that you can categorize people as good or evil. Well, that, to, to anybody who thinks for one second about human nature, that obviously doesn't make sense. So, so one of the stories, uh, Egalitaire, is about uh, when God decides that she can no longer stick with the way that she set up the system originally, and she doesn't want to have to do this thing where she divides people into good and evil because she realizes people are more complex than that. Um, so, so sometimes it came about that way. Other times it started with just sort of a, a what-if idea, um, like, uh, you know, what if uh, we actually are <clears throat> planetary rovers that were built by cosmic cartographers, and our job is just to walk around and, and collect planetary data by, you know, casting our eyes and ears and fingertips onto all the data around us, and what would be an extrapolation of that? And uh, the punchline of that story is that uh, it turns out it was a waste of time for the cartographers, because all we do is clump together and look at each other. So, um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes it started with a little what-if scenario, and other times it started to really address some, some idea. Now, uh, I love the, the prose in this. You, you talked about jotting down the ideas on little note cards or scraps of paper. Could you talk about uh, fleshing out these ideas? And, and because it's almost, in many ways, you could say this is like a, a poetry collection. <laughs> that's very interesting. I, I think uh, I, I like that description. I think that's accurate. Um, it turns out that just like poetry, uh, it's actually quite difficult to write short. Um, so... Some, I think it's easy for some people to look at this and say, wow, 40 stories that are that short, I could do something like that. And, and maybe they could, but, but it takes years to get things down to their barest essence where they are as you know, wound up as tightly as they can be um, without a spare word. So, yeah, there was a lot of rewriting. And, um, and I actually wrote uh, in total about 76 different stories for this book, and I only included the 40 that I thought were the tightest and sort of fit together the best. Um, but but I, have, I have many scraps of paper uh, still floating around. You know, this book uh, really uh, treads across a, a lot of genres of, of fiction. It's in many ways you could consider it science fiction, horror, religious fiction, speculation, nonfiction. Uh, how do you feel, and that just depends from entry to entry. So 
did that really did the, the kind of genres that you were alluding to or might be associated with in each entry did they like influence your your styles of writing or did you think back well this is kind of science fiction maybe I should think about Philip K. Dick or this is very horror maybe I should go look at my Stephen King collection uh, interesting question I I didn't I didn't reference mentally any of the uh, any of the writers that I love because I really what I tried to achieve in this book and I think I succeeded at was really just speaking in my voice the whole time. So even though the subject matter changed story to story, I feel like I was able to con- um, maintain a consistent narrative just in the in the same way that I talk day to day. So yeah, I think. Uh, uh, you know, if I had if I had any influence at all that I could point to that I could consciously recognize, uh, it would be the writer Italo Calvino, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, who wrote yes. a book called Invisible Cities. I'm sure you know this. Yeah, it's uh, Invisible Cities is Marco Polo talking to Kublai Khan and describing to him different cities in the Khan's empire. And so each story is about a different city, and I loved the structure of it, the sort of bite-sized portraits that each story presented. Um, now the difference here, of course, is it's about it's about something that I think people care a lot about, which is you know, their own mortality and what what the heck we're doing here in the first place. Um, but also the, the the key of some is that the the forty stories are mutually exclusive. So so if you were to say, oh, that's an interesting story, maybe that's true, then you then you can't say that about any of the others because they're because they're all. Yeah, um, they're mutually exclusive, and and so for me, the important part of the book is the meta message. So the, the, even though all of the individual stories, none are meant to be taken seriously, the serious part is the meta message, which is we really don't know much of anything. There, there are whole domains that are beyond the ken of science. And um, even though you can go into Barnes & Noble and see hundreds of books where people write with absolute certainty about the fervency of their own beliefs with no evidence to support those beliefs, I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a book that admits our uncertainty by just writing, um, you know, mutually exclusive beliefs? You know, I I loved the sense of humor in this book, which is really, really delicate, but highly intelligent and, and very playful. Uh, did you did you uh, write have a lot of fun writing this book? I did. I this was the most fun project I've ever done. You know, the rest of my time I write. Uh, much more serious scientific stuff, and so this was this has been an ongoing pleasure for me to write this book. Um, you know, the interesting part that I've just been realizing is over the seven years that I wrote it, it was sort of um, you know it was sort of a private endeavor. I was writing it, really enjoying the writing of it, but the way that uh, well to, to extend the parallel you made, the way that a poet might write stuff just for his own uh, entertainment and pleasure. And then, uh, you know, as it started coming into shape and I saw it really was a book, uh, I started pursuing um, publication of it and so on. But I've been, I've just been so amazed and surprised by by how it's gone because uh, it always felt like such a private, intimate endeavor to me. And then by its first week out, it hit number 39 on Amazon. And I just, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that other people got it and were having fun with it too, and uh, and it resonated with people, and so it's just it's been a wild ride for me. It's only been out for one month now, and um, it's just been such a pleasure for me that there's room out there in the world for for this particular voice, for this particular story, because it seems to me that people spend a lot of time debating. 
their versions of stories with a lot of fervency and saying, you know, this this is true. And so you've got, you know, the you got Dawkins on one side and the Discovery Institute on the other side, and they battle it out all day long. And there aren't people in the middle saying, hey, you know what? Actually, we don't really know what's going on out there. And and I and, and I didn't know if that voice, if that message would would receive an audience. And so it's just been fantastic to me that that it seems to be receiving that audience. Hey. One of the things, uh, of course, this book has many, many religious implications. So when you talk about how all of these ideas are mutually exclusive, the first thought that sprung to my mind was, well, that's like religion. (laughs) So I'm wondering, could you talk about any uh, response you've got from the religious community on this? Yeah, you know, this has been the most amazing part to me. I have gotten so much positive response from the religious community, at least from some parts of it. Um, There are several religious websites that have listed my book as, uh, one listed as one of the top ten spiritual books, which I found amazing, because of course lots of atheists like this book too, and lots of people in between. So um, they, a lot of religious sites say, you know, this will stretch you mentally and spiritually, and it, you know, allows you to think about your God in a different way, you know, just like get closer by thinking about different possibilities. And so the the real amazing part to me is that uh, this seems to be firing on all cylinders along the spectrum from atheists to, to religious people. I have, of course, gotten a few emails of people saying, you know, look, uh, our Lord and Savior has already described what the afterlife is, and they cite chapter and verse. And then I've gotten a few emails from atheists saying, you're wasting your time. When you die, you die. And, and you know, but for both groups of people, I say, look, that's a, those are definitely points in the possibility space, but the space is a lot larger than that. And essentially, those are the people for whom I'm writing the book, is, is those people for whom they could use a good mental stretch and just at least admit that they don't really know the answer. Now, we don't know the answer now, but you're probably one of the people closest who will be closest when and if we are able to find an answer. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how much research is being done into to mapping brain activity as death approaches and, and maybe what trying to figure out where what happens when it ceases? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, uh, there are a few things to say there. You know, brain science is screaming along. We're doing all kinds of good stuff here. But, but there's, we're not anywhere close to knowing exactly what happens when you die. But, but more, I mean, we don't even know the very basic questions, like what is consciousness? How is it that you build a brain out of hundreds of billions of pieces and parts, cells, and get something out of it that feels, uh, you know, that experiences the redness of red and the taste of feta cheese and this sort of thing. We don't know how you build consciousness from pieces and parts. If I gave you 100 billion tinker toys and asked you to put them together in just the right way so that when you turn this, that turns, and this happens, you know, at what point are you going to say, ah, okay, now it's conscious and it's feeling something? It has internal private experience. So we don't even know the answer to that. We don't even know what the answer is going to look like. Um, so we're a long way off from answering uh, the, the most basic questions in neuroscience. Now, this is not to say I'm a mysterian, because I do believe that, you know, there, I, I believe there's no better tool than science for understanding the blueprints around us. And we have made unbelievable progress. We've cured um, polio and smallpox, and we've gotten ships to the moon, and we've invented the internet. And we, you know, we just we just do incredible things every month in science. And so I'm a real believer in that progress. My general feeling is um, scientific progress is pretty slow, though. And in my brief twinkling of a 21st century lifetime, I 
don't expect to know the answer. And I wish I could. I mean, I wish I could know all kinds of answers. But, but given the pace of science, I think uh, um, all of us are almost certain to die without knowing a lot of things. And given that situation, uh, it doesn't make sense to me to commit to anybody's particular idiosyncratic religious story. And it doesn't make sense to me to throw everything out and say, oh, I'm an atheist. I know for sure that nothing more interesting is happening out there. Um, and so I'm, you know, so that puts me somewhere in between. And so um, to to represent the the fact that I like holding a lot of possibilities in my head about what might be going on, um, I call myself a possibilian, and that movement um, seems to be catching on. So I, I um, a couple weeks ago on Talk of the Nation mentioned that I was a possibilian, and I've gotten hundreds of emails from people saying that that seems to be the term that where they feel like that describes what they are, too. They feel like, yeah, you know, I can't quite commit to this st- religious story over here, and I don't want to throw everything out with the bathwater and say I'm an atheist. And so, you know, maybe confessing your ignorance and celebrating the awe of what's going on out there, you know, maybe that's the right position to be in. I've been speaking with David Eagleman. His new book is Some 40 Tales from the Afterlives. Thank you for joining me, David. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.